Acts 9, um, verses 1 through 18 this morning, the story of Saul's conversion. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. We, we, we have two weeks left of this Religion is Dead series. And uh, what we're going to do over the next two weeks today, we've been looking at different Old Testament stories and discovering that it's never been about religion. It's always been about something different. And today we're moving into the New Testament, and uh, we're looking at the story of Saul this morning, uh, who is Paul, becomes Paul. And then next week, we're going to look at, at Jesus. Um, but my, my fear is, is this. My fear is that we're going to kind of go through all of these stories, we walk out and we're like, yeah, that was that made sense. But we don't we don't really get it. You know? Like it's always I, that always crosses my even myself, like when I'm preparing something to speak, preparing some sort of teaching. My own fear is like, am I am I gonna get this? You know, or am I just going to talk about it? but but it doesn't really affect my life, it doesn't impact my life. And well, I want to give you a funny example of not getting it, all right? This morning I picked Douglas up. <coughs> He's already laughing. I picked Douglas up, and uh, he had a, um, a baby carrier with him. And so he's walking across the street, and I rolled out my window. I'm like, hey, is there a baby in there? And Douglas was like, nope. I'm like, all right. So I just, like, reached back, popped the door open, and I was like, just throw it on my bag. And so he's like, okay. And he was like, well, I was going to sit back here with him. And I'm like, whatever, dude, just throw it on my back. It's fine. <laughs> and like, you know, my back seat's just like jammed with car seats already and my bag and other things, and my guitar. And uh, so he's like, all right. So he like jams his baby seat. Like it's, it's touching the ceiling, you know? And so he's like putting it in. He's like kind of hesitant. And he's like, is it going to be okay in there? Is he going to be fine? And I was like, dude, I said, you have a baby in there? And I opened it up, and there's a baby in there. And, I, and I'm just like, <laughs> just, you know, throw it, throw it in. Just throw, I almost opened the trunk. I almost got out of the car just to throw it in the trunk. Here, I'll take that from you. You know? Wow. I'm not exactly sure how that ties into my message. I can tie it in somehow. But uh, basically, the idea is I didn't get it. That's kind of what I was saying. <laughs> I don't know why he did. He said there wasn't a baby in there. He was just being sarcastic, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. So, 
So we're in Acts chapter 9. But seriously though, like the more the more I read scripture, all right, the more I fall in love with Jesus myself and I the more I'm I'm learning about the person of Jesus and who he is and, and who he is in my life. And the more I'm experiencing Jesus, the more I wonder if we really are getting it. it like if we, if we're somehow missing it, you know, if we're, if we, it, we talked about a, a little bit last week, like, you know, here's the Bible and here's the narrative of the Bible. And would we fit in there as a community? Would, does our lives, the way we live and the way we do things, does it make sense biblically? And, and so I really don't know if it does half the time. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I really, I just don't know if we really get it. Um, and I want us to. I want me to get it. You know, I want to really understand what this means to, to be fully invested in Jesus Christ and to not be living, like, some kind of weird religious life. And um, so we're looking at the story of Saul. And I think this is a, probably one of the most important stories in scriptures as far as our faith goes uh as we know like paul uh did some amazing things planted a lot of churches he wrote 13 maybe 14 books of scripture and uh so this is an important moment right here this this place where saul essentially falls from religion and embraces something that makes more sense with his world and with his life and actually gives his life more purpose and more meaning than he ever had previously and so here in, in verse 1, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And murderous threats literally is murders and threats. So what this is saying is not just, he wasn't just threatening. He wasn't just going around saying, hey, I'm going to destroy. He was actually, actually complicit in the execution and the murders of Jesus' people, of people who are following Jesus, mainly Jews at this time, who are going to synagogues and they're they're having discussions with other Jews and they're worshiping Jesus as the fulfillment of everything that they were looking for uh, within with, within their understanding of life and and Saul is going around and, he, and he's literally just grabbing these people the disciples of Christ and putting them in prison and even worse executing them so he's this is his life mission at this at this moment we've got to understand something too. Here's a pop quiz. Was Paul, A, very religious, or B, not religious at all? He was very religious. We've got to understand this. Paul was the, re- the most religious of all religious. And uh, he goes to the high priest in verse 2, and he asks the high priest if he can have letters of recommendation from the high priest to all of the synagogues in Damascus. And what he wants to do is, is go to these synagogues, Take this letter from the high priest saying, you know, I, I want Saul to be doing this. I give Saul my, my green light. And he's going to go into these synagogues and he's going to, going to seek out uh, those who are following the way, is, is how it says it there, the, the Jesus people that are in these synagogues, and capture them. Take them, take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so he's on his way with this mission. He's got the, he's got the letters from the high priest and as he's nearing Damascus, there is this sudden light from heaven. It's just this flash of light, like lightning. And he, where is my bag? Can somebody, Danielle, can you grab my bag back there? I actually have an original painting yeah, in there okay. by Caravaggio. Oh, I've got it right here. This is an original painting by Caravaggio. Yeah, it's original. <laughs> I stole it from a museum in Italy. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's a copy. Um, but you guys, can you guys see this? Can everybody see this? If we had a projector, I'd like project it. We could just pretend it's projected. Um, it's kind of hard to. You got to have to kind of look at it. Stop moving. Sorry. It's, it's the coffee. <laughs> You're going to see a horse in the picture. You're going to see Paul in the, or Saul at the time in the picture, laying on the ground. You're going to see a servant right there. And hey, don't 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 be rough with that. <laughs> a lot of money. Now, as you look at this picture, 
I just want you to kind of take it in. Just what's what's actually happening here in this picture? Saul was uh, until this moment took place. He was on top of the horse. All right, as a very powerful man, a very intelligent person, a leader, somebody somebody that, that people looked up to, and all of a sudden. He's fallen from his horse. He's on the ground. His eyes are closed. He's blind. And the servant's like looking at him like, what's going on? The horse is about to trample him. What's, what's happened? And I want, I, want us to, I want us to think about this. What, what has happened is Paul has just encountered Jesus. All right? This man of great intelligence and great power all of a sudden, his abilities are gone, and his powers are gone, and he's lying there about to be trampled by a horse, blind, because he has just had, had an encounter with Jesus. In, in the narrative here, in verse 4, he fell to the ground, and he heard, he heard a loud voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And, and, and with this question, Paul is kind of like, thinking like... Uh, it, 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 it is impossible that I am actually opposing God. So who is this voice talking to me? You know, who are you? What is this? And I mean, just think about this with me for a brief second. Lightning, flash, blinding light. He falls to the ground. Um, a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who do you think it is? Elvis? You know what I'm saying? Like, who else could it be? But here's the thing with religious people. Religious people, even at the moment that they're confronted with God, they, they, they do not believe that they are, are opposing God. They can't fathom the fact that they very well could be against God. They, they're convinced that they are doing everything right. They're convinced that every, every action that they're doing is completely in line with what God wants them to do. And they can't fathom the fact that they are opposing God. And for all of this, for all of us, this has to be a, a moment where, where we are convicted and where we think. Like, even if God, were, if God were to speak to me in some fashion and say, you know, Joel, Joel, you know, why are you persecuting me or whatever? And he's basically saying, the way you're living your life is not pleasing me. Would I actually believe that that's God talking to me? And what religious people do is they invent a God which they can placate. We talked about Marx and Freud and Nietzsche and their critiques, the modern critique of religion. We talked about how, we talked about how, how Freud uh, says religion is, is simply a um, self-justification. So you can basically do what you want to do, and, and you've invented a God which makes you feel better about what you do. And so Paul here, he's, he's living a life of self-justification. He's, he's killing people. He's going around persecuting people. And yet, yet he, he's believing in a God which gives him a thumbs up to annihilate anybody who poses as a threat to his power. The second thing, Freud, or that's, that's Freud. Marx talks about how religion is a uh, social exclusion. Uh, what, which we're seeing here with Paul. He's, Paul's like, I have all of the right answers. I have uh, the truth. And because you people don't, what I'm going to do is I'm going to exclude you and I'm actually going to persecute you. And then Nietzsche, of course, talks about how religion is nothing less than a, than a power struggle. And that's, that's his whole thing. It's, Paul is a powerful, powerful person. So Paul, I mean, like, even, even according to the modern critique of religion, Paul is an extremely religious person. Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche wouldn't like him very much. And so here he is, and he's like, <clears throat> thank you. Let's, uh, I'll take that back to Italy. <laughs> Stick in the mail. Paul, Paul's like, he's like, what, who are you, Lord? You know, what is this? Who is this voice that's speaking to me? And then the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And here's the reality. He's going, he's persecuting the people of Jesus. Therefore, he's persecuting Jesus, his body. He replied, 
in verse 6. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what to do. The men traveling with Paul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when, when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand to Damascus. And so there's this moment, these, these, this interaction that he has with this voice. And it's very clear that it's not Elvis, but it's, it's the very voice of Jesus saying, "Why, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then as he, as he opens his eyes, he's blind. He can't see. And all throughout the scriptures, there are, there are places in, especially the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, where God uses blindness for two reasons. One, to stop somebody from doing something harmful, like when the men were banging down the doors in Sodom, uh, God blinded the men, if you remember that. To stop somebody from doing something harmful. And also, he uses blindness to get people's attention. And I, I think with Paul, with Saul here, I keep on going back and forth. What do we want to call him today? Should we call him Saul? We'll call him Saul. With Saul, I think it's both. I think he's, he's literally stopping Saul in his tracks so he cannot continue to go on and persecute the church. But he's also giving Saul blindness so he can get his attention. And do we not think that God will use, wouldn't use blindness in our own life? In some fashion. Maybe not physically blind with our sight. But, but I, I'm convinced that, that God will uh, take things away from us. Take abilities away. Take things, material things away. He'll, he, he will remove things from us to get our attention. I know this, I mean, I've got a friend, and we could get all, like, supernatural about this, and I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to be goofy about this here, but I've got a friend who, who literally, he was, he was a great singer, he literally lost his voice. And when he lost his voice, he had, he had a time without singing, and what he realized uh, when he was not singing was that singing had become a god in his life. Like, that's all he thought about. That's all, that's, that's, that's where his hope was, was in was in his voice and so it was just this beautiful moment where in his blindness he recognized that God has been pursuing him and calling him and then sometime later he, he actually got his voice back but you you may be going through some something in your life that doesn't make sense right now some kind of quote-unquote blindness if you would and we've got to be aware of, we're gonna we're gonna kind of get back to that in just a little bit but we'll go on with the story right now uh, so he, so he's led to Damascus by hand because he's blind when he gets to Damascus there's a man in Damascus named Ananias and Ananias doesn't know he's never met Paul Saul but he knows who Saul is uh, he's heard his reputation he knows that he has these letters that he's uh, in hand, he's coming to Damascus to give to the synagogue leaders so they can so he can arrest all the Jesus followers. And here's Ananias, a Jesus follower. And God, God gives Ananias a vision. He speaks to him and he says, I want you to go to Saul. He's, he's down in a house on Straight Street. I want you to go to Saul and, and I want you to tell him what I have for him. And Ananias is like, mm-hmm, I don't think so. You know, he's, he's just going to arrest me. This is what he's here for. I know his reputation. And God says, actually, I'll, I'll read it to you. Look at verse 15. He says, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And then look at verse 16. I want us all to read this. This is probably the most important verse in this entire chapter. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Wow. Not the typical come to Jesus message, is it? You know, I remember when I was like 18, 19, I, I remember actually telling somebody, this is a very vivid memory in my mind. Uh, I remember telling somebody, uh, you should become a Christian because it's like a great life. Like it's, it's cool, you know, everybody's doing it. <laughs> how can you not be a Christian come on man like it's the good life it's the good life and I remember thinking at 18 19 I remember thinking I don't believe what I'm saying 
Like, I don't actually believe, because when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, while I considered myself a quote-unquote Christian, there was nothing about Jesus that was active and evident in my life. And during that same time period, I remember struggling with this idea because I, I knew that if I gave my life over to Jesus, like if I really believed it, if I really believed everything and I gave my life to Jesus, I knew that everything would change. And I knew that, I essentially knew that Jesus would ruin my life. <laughs> I had a pretty good thing going. You know, I had dreams. I had ideas. I, I wanted to make a certain amount of money. I had a vision of what, what my life could possibly look like. And I knew that if I really, like, invested my life into Jesus and I really gave my life over to Jesus, I knew that, that my life would be ruined. And so I remember telling this person this, and I, just, I was thinking, I don't really believe this. Because if you actually give your life to Jesus, dude, it's, <laughs> your life is going to be ruined. But we don't tell people that. We like come down to the altar and uh, accept Jesus. And when you get down there, we're, down here, we're going to take you over and we're going to tell you now how much you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. Come to Jesus, everybody. Right? That's, but this is the message. This is Paul's, Saul's, come to Jesus message. Go and tell him how much he's now going to suffer for my name. This man who, if you, look, if you remember from this painting, moments ago was, was powerful. He was on top of the horse, not being trampled by the horse. He's well-dressed. He's, he's living the life. And all of a sudden, he's had this encounter with Jesus where he's, he's smacked to the ground. His abilities are gone. His, his sight is gone. And, and now the message is, all right, Saul, here's how much you're going to suffer. For my name. The wild thing is this. Is Saul didn't run from this. He didn't run. Because what happens is. When you convert. Quote unquote. From religion. To something more real. To a real kind of spirituality. You see things as they are. And what used to be important to you, power, prestige, money, resources, whatever, just simply isn't important anymore. It's just the reality of it. And, there, and, and Paul, later on in the scriptures, elaborates how, how much suffering he has gone through. Three shipwrecks. He's been imprisoned. He's been left for dead. He's been sick. <laughs> but then he's like, there's no greater joy. There's no greater joy than all of this, than to suffer, to join Christ in his suffering. Now, there is a uh, mainstream belief, if you would, that the rise of Christianity took place because uh, of essentially a power struggle. That there were these kind of, this weird sect, say, of, of Christians. And then Constantine became a Christian. And when Constantine became a Christian, he took this like strange little sect of Christianity and he made it the, the religion of Rome, right? Have you ever heard this critique? And so that's why religion is the dominant faith in the world is simply because Constantine took it and forced it down people's throats. And the, the reality is, is that's not really historical. It's not really truth. What, first of all, we'll start with Paul. I want to actually talk about the rise of Christianity, Christianity, Christianity a little bit. Paul, from this point on, changes his name to Paul, which means small and humble. Anything. You know, completely different from, from the life he once lived as a religious person. He then travels... 15,000 miles over the rest of his life. 15,000 miles. Think about this. Uh, and he didn't have a car. <laughs> and he, he might not even, he probably didn't even have a horse. He's on foot over the, over the seas. He's tra he travels 15,000 miles and completely devotes the rest of his life to this, to this cause. And he, he begins planting all of these churches and then these, these people who are, are following Jesus and they're, they're seeing 
Jesus. And by the way, this is very important that Paul, nowhere in here does it give any indication that, that Paul converted from one religion to another religion. Because here's the reality, and we've got to understand this. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. <clears throat> Jesus came to fulfill religion. He came to fulfill it. The search, the longing. And so he's, Paul isn't starting a new religion here, or he's not at the beginning of a new religion. He's simply embracing this fulfilled life that's found in Christ. And so it's going uh, all across the world. There's these churches springing up. From 30 AD, 30 to 40 AD, there were roughly about a thousand followers of Christ. Shortly after Christ died, there were about a thousand followers of Christ. Now, from that point, from let's say 30 AD till 300 AD, shortly before Constantine. Are you guys familiar with the conversion of Constantine and all that? For the most part? Before Constantine was converted to Christianity, and then Rome then became a, a Christian, quote-unquote, Christian state. Before that happened, in 300 AD, you want another multiple choice? Can we do another multiple choice? Were there, A, uh, 10,000 followers of Jesus, or B, a million followers of Jesus, or C, 6 million followers of Jesus? C, 6 million followers of Jesus. One in every ten people living in the Roman Empire in 300 AD was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. A tenth of the entire empire. And we've got to understand something. This is while Christianity was being persecuted. So for, for this time period, Rome, who knew, they knew how to get rid of pagan cults. They were very familiar with the pagan cults. When a pagan cult sprung up, and it was threatening a threat to the way of Rome, what they would do is they would simply cut the head off. They would kill the leader, and it would dissipate. So they tried this for, for all of this time with Christianity. They tried it with the apostles. Every one of the apostles were chopped. Paul himself was eventually killed. Jesus was killed. They tried to put the leaders to death, and they couldn't stop it. It was like this viral movement. Exponential growth. And from 30 AD with a thousand followers to 300 AD, it grew six million people with no institution, no hierarchy, no, no worship buildings, no church buildings. It was just, it was followers of Jesus coming together and saying, let's start a church and let's, let's multiply this. Let's get intentional about this. Let's, this is all there is to life. They're losing their jobs for all of this time. What it meant to become a Christian, the altar call for to become a Christian during this time was come and suffer with us. That's what it was. For the, the early rise of Christianity, it was not about greater status. It was not about more things here. It was come and join us in the suffering of Christ. And as they did this and as they gave up their way of life, they gave up their jobs and their families, they would find a greater fulfillment. They would find greater life and greater strength than they ever could find before. There was, there was a guy named Celsus who was uh, in the second century, one of the first critics, actually, of Christians. And Celsus wrote this. I'm not finding it here. I've got notes all over the place. Celsus complained that the new faith was spreading house to house by wool workers, cobblers, laundry workers, illiterate, and yokels. And this was during the time when Christianity was actively persecuted. There was no institution, no hierarchy, no power that was spreading this, this message of hope in Jesus Christ. It was through everyday people who were being confronted with an experience with Jesus and they're experiencing the, the transformative life that he has and they can't help but then going and, and, and spreading it. And it goes back to this command that Jesus gave all of us to go into all of the world and preach the gospel. About a year ago, 
a, actually a year ago today, is today the 16th? <coughs> All right, it was yesterday. A year ago yesterday, there was a young girl, she was 13 years old, she passed away from cancer. And uh, I got to know her shortly before she died. She was at Johns Hopkins Hospital when I, when I first met her. And I've only, I only talked with her twice. Um, she was at the hospital, and, and I was asked through a friend of a friend if I could go and pray with this young 13-year-old who's, who has cancer all throughout her body, and she's dying. And so, of course, I, I went to the hospital and went to her room, and there she was and with lumps all over her body and you know, bald head and in a lot of pain, and so I talked with her for a little bit, and I, I wanted to share, uh, share Christ with her. I wanted to share the gospel with her, and I knew that she was, had come from a home who didn't teach her about Jesus. They had, they had no clue. And so I'm, I'm talking with this girl, and I, and I begin to share Christ with her, and to be honest, guys, it was really awkward. <laughs> you ever have that moment where you're trying to, like, move the conversation around, Share, share about Jesus, and it was just a really awkward kind of conversation. And, and and what really kind of became awkward too is I'm talking about the fact that we're sinners. And one of uh, this this older friend of hers that was there, a lady, she looks at her and she was like, "But you're not a sinner. You need to know that you're not a sinner." I'm like, ah, you're kind of missing the point here. <laughs> and so it was just this awkward. And so we kind of like stood and and um, and I prayed for everybody, and and I left, and that was it. And I thought, all right, well, you know, that's that was that was my part, I guess. And um, but it was just strange. It was just strange. And so I go, and, and I'm a couple weeks later. I'm actually uh, out here at this park, and it was a Sunday. We were let's throw in the frisbee with Megan and her parents. You remember that? Where's Megan? Huh? No, we were throwing the frisbee. Yeah, <laughs> remember that day? We were all having a little barbecue, throwing the frisbee. And uh, I got a call from her dad, just out of the blue. I was shocked. And he said, I need you to come to the hospital now because uh, the doctors told, told her that she doesn't have any time left, basically. She's got a couple days left. And we asked her who she wants to see, and she's, she only mentioned one person, and she wants to talk to you. And so I'm like, all right. Now, I, w- I want to say this. In, this. in this moment, all right, was there anything else more important than getting to the hospital? Anything at all? Of course not. I mean, I put the frisbee down. I'm like, I gotta go. I gotta take off. And Jess was just like, go, go. You know, I'll get the girls home. I'll clean up. Don't worry about it. I mean, like that was just the focus at that moment. Like everything else blurred. That was the only thing else that mattered. So I hop in the car. Actually, I think it's at the light. I don't remember. I got over there. And I walked in, and there she is, and she's worse than she was when I, before I, you know, the, la- the previous time I saw her. She's laid out, and she's in pain. And I, and I sit down next to her, I'm like, you wanted to see me? And she was like, she was like yeah, I want to hear more about Jesus. I was like, wow. You know, like, I thought it was over. I thought it ended right there. And so I just, like, really just explained it in depth. And she, she asked, how do I accept this? How do I find this kind of life? And so I let her... To Christ right there. And she died a couple days later. And guys, the reason I share this story is this, is during those kind of moments, that's all that matters in life, right? Why is it, though, that when when those intense moments aren't there, that we still don't think like that? You see what I'm saying? Like, think about the people that are around you. I mean, we could literally die any moment, you know? It could be over for us. It could be over over for your friend who's hurting. Why don't we have that same kind of intensity day in and day out, 24-7? Why isn't, why isn't it, like, always right there for us to, to go after and to, to run after and to to leave things that don't really matter very much and to say this is the most important thing right now. This is what I've been called to. To sit with somebody, to suffer with somebody. This is what life is all about. It's not about attaining wealth. It's not about doing something for myself. I think it's interesting as we think about 
going, kind of going back to the rise of Christianity, when, when Constantine was converted in the 4th century, all of a sudden Christianity then had the resources and the power that they, that they had previously lacked. But you know what they lost? That missional gospel intensity. A friend of mine, he's a, he's a writer, and he, he calls this, not the conversion of Constantine, but he calls it the conversion of Christianity. It's when Christianity moved from something which was driven completely by Christ and completely by the Holy Spirit and completely by the great commission of going into all the world and, and preaching the good news. And it, and it then became something about beautiful buildings. It became something about hierarchies. You see? I, I heard a... Uh, guy who spent a little bit of time in a part of Asia where Christians are essentially not allowed to be Christians and they're not allowed to gather for worship. And he was talking, he's an American. He was talking about when he went down there. Uh, shortly after he got there, he was asked by one of the leaders in the church there if, if he could come and train their house church, church leaders. And this is this is a pretty big deal for a Westerner because Christian or Western Westerners, Americans are automatically associated with Christians, and so in this part of Asia, if you were seen with a, with an American, it was not a good thing. It was easier to you know have the authorities come down on you, and so it's a pretty big honor for him to go. And so he walks into this room and, and, and he, he goes in. And it's just this little room, and there's about twenty uh, of these house church leaders sitting on the floor and on, on little stools in a circle. And he, he walks into the room and, and he's like, what do you want me to do? And they were like, just teach us the Bible. And so he opens up the Bible and he just starts teaching it. And it was uh, two o'clock when he started and 10 o'clock that evening they finished. And so he was kind of thinking like, okay, I've given you a pretty good overview of the Bible and uh, appreciate the time with you guys. At the end of the day, he's approached by one of the uh, house church leaders, and they were like, can you please come back tomorrow? Um, the way that you talked about Nehemiah, you went into the, uh, the history behind Nehemiah, and the meaning behind the book, and why it's there, why it was written. Uh, what we would like you to do is, can you do that with every book of the Old Testament for us? And so like, he was like, oh, are you serious? And and they're like, yeah, just as long as it takes, just teach us each book of the Old Testament. And he was like, all right, what time do you want me to come back tomorrow? And they, they said, uh, they said, come back at 8 in the morning, and we'll finish at 8 in the evening. So he goes back the next day, and he starts with Genesis. And he begins systematically going from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through the entire Old Testament. And talks about the overview of the Old Testament, the meaning behind the books, why they were written. From 8 in the morning till 8 at night for two weeks straight. Now, keep in mind, these are house church leaders that are not, that are not getting paid. They're not on staff of any church, all right? These are people who have fields to work. They're farmers. And they have left their fields for two weeks. It doesn't matter. They don't care about the fields. They don't care about the work that has to be done because there's something else that's more important right now. We have somebody who can teach us the Old Testament. And so they just forget everything else in their life, and they sit for two weeks and listen to him 12 hours a day talk about all of the books in the Old, Old Testament. At the end of the two weeks, um, the, uh, the same leader comes back to him, and they're kind of having this conversation. He was like, you know, that was great, but you haven't done it yet with the New Testament. <laughs> and so, the next, he, so he takes the next day, and for 11 hours the next day, he goes through every book in the New Testament from, from Matthew through Revelation, and he teaches them every book in the, in the, in the New Testament. And then after it's, after it's over, they've completely, he's, he's taught the Bible in two weeks. Um, after it's all over, they say, we want you to come and, and uh, come to one of our house churches. And so that night, they meet at night under the cover of darkness. They took him and they, they put a hood on him so people couldn't tell what, what color he was, and he was a, a light-skinned American. They put a hood on him and stuck him in the back of a car, and they drove him into this village where this house church meets. And um, 
And, you know, we call them house churches. I don't know if they call them house churches. They just call them churches. I mean, they're just churches. That's all they can do. They go into this building, and, and they kind of go through, the, like, to this other part of the building. It's, it's all secretive and hidden. And he walks into this room, a small, a small room, about this space right here. And as he walks in, there's about 60 people that are just crammed into this little space. And there's a one light bulb hanging from the ceiling just dangling there. And for, for two or three hours, these people in the middle of the night worship. They sing. The, the teacher gets up and he teaches. They could die for this. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, do you see what they're risking? Like, they're not living the good life. They're not focused on their career because there's other things that have become more important now. They're... I was, I was actually talking with Sean about this earlier this week, and we were, we were kind of talking a little bit about, about persecution in, in other areas. And I was like, you know, it always like sticks out to me how, or I, I always think about this. When I think about the churches like this that are gathering in parts of Asia, and in, in parts of India, and other places around the world, and they could literally be arrested, if not killed, for worshiping. Yet they do it anyway. And it's like here in America... The littlest thing keeps us from gathering with our brothers and sisters for worship. Isn't that just strange? Like, we could do it whenever we want, as much as we want, and we choose to do it once a week. And it's so easy, you know, like, um, I think I'll just sleep in today, actually. You know? <laughs> or drank a little too much last night. Or there's... I was going to say there's a TV show to watch, but we don't watch TV anymore, do we? I talked about that last week. It's all on the internet now, so it's on demand. Which is like the littlest thing keeps us from coming together to worship. Why is that? Why is that saying? All right. I, the reality is we are religious people. It's, it's something that's nice that we, if we can, if we can fit it into our schedules... We can add it into our life. It's not something... I mean, when, think about your own life. And let's be very honest, and you don't have to voice anything. When was the last time that you truly gave something up for the cause of Christ? Like, literally, something that, that you couldn't live without. You gave it up. When was the last time you literally put yourself into danger because of the cause of, because of, the cause of Christ? Yet... People in, in parts of Asia and parts of India do this every week, every day. Now, what happened when Christianity went from uh, pre-Constantine to post-Constantine? What happened was it moved from these dyna this dynamic, organic movement that we see in parts of Asia and India. It moved from that to much like what we have going on today in America. There was somebody who, I, forget, I think they were from Africa, actually. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, but they said, they looked at the American churches and they said, it's amazing how much you guys can do without the Holy Spirit. Like, you do a lot of good stuff, but I don't see any Holy Spirit there. Like, there's no reason to rely. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we... We can strategize and we can figure things out to such a degree, because we have the resources and the abilities, we can figure things out to such a degree that we really don't have to rely on God. We can manipulate things. And what do we lose? We lose life transformation. We lose intensity. I mean, I think about churches today, and guys, I'm not one to like bash churches, and I'm not going to bash churches right now, but I just think about kind of the state of our, of churches in America today. Um, we feel like we have to do so much. We have to have the greatest sound system, and the greatest lighting, and the greatest, the coolest worship space, and like these beautiful historic church buildings that we boast that we meet in, or whatever it is, you know, and we, we do things to try to draw people and, tra and attract people, yet there are these dynamic movements of God, these churches, which are taking place in packed little 
basement rooms with one light bulb hanging from the ceiling. I mean, what are we missing? You see what I'm saying? Like when I say I, I'm afraid that we're missing it, I'm afraid that we'll go through these eight weeks or however many it is of this, this series that we've been talking about religion being dead and there's something more out there, and that we'll actually miss, we'll miss it, you know, we'll, and we'll kind of just keep on going on with the same kind of intensity that we, that we had previously. Look at verse 17 in chapter 9. Uh, when Then Ananias went, went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What was it that caused Saul to move away from his comfortable, powerful place in a religion to move away from that and to accept this call to a life of, of suffering to accept a call to a life which would be completely consumed with the way of Jesus what was it it was nothing else than an encounter he had with Jesus and then the scales immediately, it says in verse 18, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. I, I was online the other day and I saw, found this, I think it was on Wikipedia or something like that. It was actually a, somebody created this, uh, I think it was like 10 step process on how to convert somebody to your religion. How do you convert somebody to your religion? And there was actually like this 10-step process that they, that they created. And so I'm reading and I'm like, wow, you know, like a religious person would actually follow this. Like that's the mentality with religion is, is conversion so we can grow our thing, so we can have a bigger thing, or so we can uh, have, have a more powerful entity or denomination or control, right? Whereas, I mean, it's for, for Saul and for Peter and for all of these people that are driving the New Testament stories, for them, it wasn't like a list of like 10 steps on how to convert somebody. Like, they didn't care about that. For them, it was this dynamic experience that they had, this life transformation experience that they had. And without, I mean, without a life transformation experience, Without truly experiencing face-to-face -face Jesus, I mean, what point would there be to share it? What point would there be to tell anybody about it? If it's, I mean, if it's just to simply get people to believe like you do, that's stupid, you know? But for them, what, what's driving them is not an institution or, or building something or having more revenue. What, what's driving them is the fact that they have experienced Jesus. They've experienced life change and they can't help but but share it but share that hope i mean all i know is this from within my own life i have experienced christ i've experienced the tra transformative power that he has in my own life and i've experienced the joy that he gives me and the peace that he gives me and the hope that he gives me and when i get a phone call from a dad who says my daughter is dying and she wants to hear more about jesus how can i not want to share that with her you see what I'm saying? Like, it's just a natural reaction. Like, can I tell you the hope that I've found? It's, it's more than what you can see, and it's more than what you can touch. It's more than what you can feel. It's something much greater than all of this. There's a greater hope out there. And the hope is this. It's in Revelation 21, 22. And I'll just turn there. If you'd like to turn there as well, you feel free. 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the th throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And nothing else matters. 
The old order, order, the old order has passed away. And we embrace this hope of Jesus Christ, of resurrection, of new life. Something that's much deeper and it's much farther than, than we, what we can see and what we can touch, what we can feel. Is there, is there someone here who, who has been so consumed with, with yourself? And Jesus has been sort of a nice additive to your life. Like you kind of have your visions and your desires and your wants and your dreams. And it's really nice once in a while to go and to sing a song and to listen to a teaching and to have a little Jesus in your life. And you need to repent of your religiosity. And you need to move to a true, consuming, saturated faith in Jesus Christ. Is there somebody here who's going through a period of blindness where you know that there is something lacking in your life? There's, there's even something that's been taken away. And you know that, that God is pursuing you and he wants to get your attention and you just, it's time to just fall and repent. What we're going to do, we're going to have communion together, and um, I'm going to to pray. Uh, We're going to stand together. And as as you come forward to take communion today, the the whole point of communion is to remind ourselves of this covenant that we have with Christ, Uh, this covenant of of love, of, uh, of life, of restoration. It's for those who have a right relationship with God and have a right relationship with, with each other. And so as, as you come today, I want you, before, or before you come, to really look inward and to ask yourself, is, have I, have I, am I just a religious person or has Christ really consumed my life? And so as you come, I want you to come with a commitment that, that Christ is more than just a nice additive, but he is... He is everything. He's completely consumed you. And then, of course, if you have baggage, if you have problems with other brothers and sisters, uh, if you can make it right now, make it right. If you can't make it right now, commit to making it right before you come. So let's stand together and if Jess and uh, Kazai as well.